Good evening, PC3. It is good to be with you guys. Um, I'm going to jump right in uh, by jumping back about two years ago, um, about two years, one week short, when I had a chance to propose to my wife, Rochelle. And yeah, amen, as always, for the next 80 years of my life, we will amen that. It'll be great. But so with, uh, with getting engaged to Rochelle, I wanted Rochelle to know that I was proposing to her, right? So like if I had like, hey, in the middle, like I knew like two months after dating her that she was the girl that I wanted to propose to. It would have been, I like, it would have been really weird if I was just like, hey, I want to propose to her. I don't know what she's going to say. And I'm just going to drop down to one knee and just go for it, right? That would be terrible. I wanted Rochelle to know, uh, but I also didn't want her to know exactly how it was going to happen. I wanted her to know so that she could wear a cute outfit on like the possible day, that if we're going on like a fancy date or something, she's wearing a dress that she's going to want to get proposed to in. She's going to have her nails done. But also at the same time, I didn't want her to know, know, so that it wouldn't be a surprise to her. On the other end, I think you guys have seen like different, maybe you guys have seen, I saw a Vine a few years ago where a dude, uh, there's a bunch of people in Times Square and the guy drops down to one knee and the girl takes a step back and goes no and just bolts into the crowd and takes out a guy as she's running out of the circle because she is just like trying to get away from everything going on, right? And so at the same time, I need to know but like, not just like, no, I need to know that I know that like Rochelle is going to say yes when I propose to her. Because that is a big, the, the consequences of me not knowing in that situation, it's not something where I just want to know a little bit and have like a hopeful confidence in, but I want to be able to go into it and go, hey, I know that when I drop down to one knee, I know that Rochelle is going to say yes to me and that this is going to have a happy ending to this story. Now, as we talk about tonight, as we're continuing on our series through 1 John, we're talking about another topic that we need to make sure that we know. And the topic that we're talking about is how do I know that I am saved? And just like how I want to know that Rochelle is going to say yes to me, we need to be able to know that someday when we die, if we go to the gates of heaven and we look at Jesus, we don't want to just have like a hopeful, man, I, I, hope, that she, I hope that Jesus says yes to me, but we need to have a confidence because the consequences of a yes or no when we get to heaven someday, the consequences are eternal. And so out of all the topics that we could talk about, this one carries a lot of weight and a lot of importance. I know that for some of us in the room, anytime we talk about, hey, how do I know that I'm saved or how do I know I'm a Christian, it can cause us a lot of anxiety. And I think to some extent it should. But my hope for tonight is as we walk through chapter 2 of 1 John, uh, through the first few verses of it, I hope that we actually don't walk forward thinking about, man, am I going to make it to heaven someday with some anxiety and not knowing what's going to happen, just hoping for the best, but that we would actually walk forward confidently going, I know where I'm going to end up, and I, I know that I know. And so that is the hope for tonight. And as we dive into 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 17, we're going to use three different thoughts to sort of help us um, plow, plow our way through this section of scripture. And so the three points or the three thoughts we have for tonight are, you know you know if you have been changed. You know you know if you love others more. And you know you know if you love the world less. 
If you're a note taker, take a moment to write those down. You know you know if you have been changed, if you love others more, and if you love the world less. And with that, we'll dive into the first of those three thoughts. You know you know if you have been changed. Diving in with verse three, it says this. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And so right out of the gate, going into chapter 2, John starts off with some incredibly weighty words as he warns his readers how to discern if a person is saved or not or how they themselves are saved or not. When John talks about the idea of knowing God, he's not just saying having a theological view or having a historic, like looking at your history book and saying, oh yeah, I believe that these things happened or they are real. What he is saying is that you know God in that you are in relationship with him. And if you are in relationship with God, you would be saved. And so as John is diving into the second part of his letter, he off the bat is countering this belief, this theology that still runs in our church today, churches today, called antinomianism. And so that word, we got, def- we got some, uh, some phrases up here for you. Uh, the first part of it is anti, which means no, and nomianism, which you can see how norm is a part of that, norms, rules, or law. And so antinomianism is this belief that the law or following God or obeying God once someone has been saved doesn't matter at all. Essentially, this belief is that once someone places their faith in Jesus, there is no need for them to live their lives differently at all. They understand the first half of the gospel, but they miss out on the second half. And so it would be good for us to actually come to understanding and rearticulating what the fullness of the gospel is. We believe that God is the ruler over all things. He is the creator of everyone and everything, and therefore everything belongs to him. And as we learned last week as Daniel was preaching, he is a good God, and that's why John calls him light. We see then that as God created us, he created us to be in his image and to be reflectors of his grace to the world. However, we have revolted against this God. Adam and Eve revolted in the garden, and we revolt against him anytime we fall short of perfection. Anytime we lie, anytime we lust in our minds, anytime we are egocentric or prideful or anything else that is not perfectly holy and godly. The punishment, then, for our revolting, our treason, is that we are to pay the punishment for our sins, which is death and separation from God for all of eternity. And the third part of this gospel is the rescue. So then God laid out his rescue plan that he predestined for us before time. He would make promises and covenants with his people to show them their sins throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And as they would realize that there is nothing that they can do to save themselves, there's nothing they can do to become perfect once again, they would come to the realization that they would need to turn towards something else. 
And over hundreds and hundreds of years, they would turn towards something else, turn towards something else, turn towards something else for salvation, but none of it was enough for them. In the end, they would have to come to the realization that the something else they were looking for was actually a someone. And God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins of his people. That Jesus, would, who would be fully God so that he could pay for the sins committed against God, and who was also fully man, allowing him to take the place of man and to endure the punishment that we had earned for ourselves. Jesus, fully man, fully God, came and died for sinners so that they could be saved. And where this begins to get confusing is we start to, where things get really hard for us and a church that can preach the gospel, is we can get confused on the fourth part of this gospel presentation, which is what is our response then and how does this look in our lives? So we've got a slide up there that walks through those four different points, ruler, revolt, rescue, response. So the response is where we have some confusion. The response that we have towards God comes back to two characteristics of who he, uh, who he is and thus two responses that need to happen as a result. And so we've seen two different identities of who God is in that gospel, that he is both ruler and he is a rescuer. Two different theologies that can miss the mark on actually knowing what God wants of us. The first is legalism, and legalism is what happens when we forget that Jesus is rescuer, and antinomianism is when we forget Jesus is ruler. So when we forget characteristics of who our God is, we miss the gospel, we miss out on what our response should actually be. When we forget that Jesus is our rescuer, we forget the truth of the gospel that we are not the ones who save ourselves. We are not good enough. We have revolted against God and the punishment for, every, for even a single sin that we've committed against that God is eternal death, eternal separation from him. That you can do your best to try and make up your life sentence throughout your life. However, the punishment that you've racked up for yourself costs an entire eternity. And further than that, Isaiah even talks about when we try to do our good works, he says that our filthy rags are but, our righteous acts are but filthy rags before the Lord. And more proper translation being menstrual rags. And so what Isaiah here is saying is that the best things that you can do to try and please God on your own strength without someone taking your punishment, without someone taking your place, is the equivalent of rags being used to clean up blood after a period. You are not good enough, and you cannot save yourself. You needed Jesus to die and take your place. You need someone to rescue you. You are unable to rescue yourself. Your works cannot do anything for your salvation. On the other end, antinomianism forgets that Jesus is the ruler. The story of so many people in the church today is that they said a prayer at a church camp where they they said this prayer when they were seven years old or something along those lines. And because I said that prayer when I was seven years old, I haven't done anything with Jesus since then. But if you were to ask them, hey, do you have a religious background? They would say, oh yeah, I'm Christian. They would say that they're Christian because they had one moment where they realized they needed a savior, where they called upon the name of Jesus. However, ever since then, their life has looked very much not like Christians. We are saved by placing our faith in Jesus, 
not just saying that we believe that Jesus was a man who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. Not, not saying that we place our faith in Jesus, that, that he is someone that we, we think would be a good teacher or that we like the different things that he taught to us. When we say that we're placing our faith in Jesus, what we mean is that we would trust him with our very lives. What we're saying by placing our faith in him is that we believe and we know that he is the fit ruler, that we should be doing everything that he says, and that that would be a better way to rule over our lives than what we do ourselves. He is meant to be our ruler, not us. So, when we place our faith in him after he has saved us, our lives are changed by the fact that we have placed our faith in him and he intertwines his faithfulness into our hearts and then he changes our desires as we go through our lives. So that if someone is truly a Christian, as John is putting it, they were going to be able to look back at their lives and they're going to see, oh, I'm not who I was anymore. That as John is articulating this, he's saying, hey, you are not the, he's not articulating saying, hey, you need to just try harder after becoming a Christian. And if you try hard enough and work hard enough, you're going to have a guarantee of your salvation. What he's saying is not that at all. What he's saying is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you're saying, I believe God, I trust God, I know that God is good, I know that God loves me, that is going to change everything about your life. That we as Christians should be able to say, I'm not who I was when I was first saved. God has changed me. A Christian no longer loves sin as he once did. A Christian no longer plans to sin as he once did. A Christian no longer fondly remembers his sin as he once did. A Christian never fully enjoys his sin as he once did. A Christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin as he once was. When John here says that we can know that we know him, knowing him as in being saved by him, is that now that we're in a relationship with him, we see that sin, as we grow in our love for him, as we grow in our knowledge for him, the sins of this world are no longer our favorite appetite. That we are no longer craving to rebel against him, we're no longer craving to do things that are not in his likeness. This doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect going forward, but this does mean that our hearts are being changed, and so we are going to go on a different trajectory for our lives. We've all been to a store before where we've seen spoiled kids not getting what they want. So like, maybe you're like walking down an aisle, and a kid goes, hey mom, can I have this candy bar? And the mom says, no, no, we've got candy at home. And the kid just absolutely goes nuts and goes crazy because they're not receiving this thing that they want. And the reason why the kid is throwing a tantrum in that moment is because they believe that they deserve that thing. Because likely, maybe what has happened in the past is that they've received a lot of stuff, they've received a lot of things, their parents have given them whatever they wanted, and because they've received all these different things from their parents, they become spoiled over time. And so because of that, they believe that they deserve more, they want other things, they, want their, they get upset with their parents for not giving them the things they want in the store. And sometimes, this is how we can view what 
this sometimes is how we can view the idea of grace. When we talk about how God loves us and he gives us a free gift and that we say, hey, you don't have to do anything in order to earn his salvation. Sometimes the fear in our preaching the gospel is that people go, oh, I don't have to do anything to receive the grace of Jesus. I don't have to do anything to earn our relationship with him. That means I'm just going to take this and if he tries to give me something else that I if he tries to give me something else that I don't want, no, no, I just want the stuff that I think is good for me, and I don't want the rest of it. Sometimes we believe that people receive this grace, that they're going to walk away like a spoiled child and go, I just want these things. I don't actually love the gift giver. But if we see that out in the Christian world, the problem there is not the idea of grace being a free gift. The problem in it is that we're just appreciating the gift and not actually the gift giver himself. That if we actually understand the fact that we are not deserving of the grace of God, that each of us could be condemned to an eternity away from Jesus for forever, and that he would be right in condemning us in such a way, and that the only reason why we were able to enter into the gates of heaven is purely because the ruler of the entire universe has looked at his revolting children who do not do what he commands for them to do, and yet he chose to rescue them by his grace and mercy. We have no right to be spoiled brats. That what we should be doing is, and probably as you've gotten older, instead of being spoiled kids, we look at our parents when they give us a gift, when maybe we were out on our own and we've got, we're doing our own things in the world, and someone gives you a gift that you don't deserve, that they're just giving it to you out of the kindness of their hearts. Your heart towards them doesn't get harder and go, I'm taking this and I'm running, but it's going to change your affections for that person because you acknowledge that you did not deserve it in the first place. So we as Christians don't do anything to earn our salvation. It is a free gift from God. But how that's supposed to work out in our lives, if we truly understand it, if we come to a place of humility, of understanding that we truly do deserve the wrath of God, that is going to change our hearts and change our lives that we're no longer going to want to do things that are harmful towards our Heavenly Father. When we understand God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, we are not going to be spoiled, but we're going to be humbled, and everything is going to be different. John then takes a focus more into one of the ways that we see this, how the gospel has changed us or made us new as we're walking in light, and one of the clear ways that we can see this living now of how God changes us is how we love others. So the second idea, you know you know if you love others more. Read verse 7 with me. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it is an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims I am living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. 
As John dives into the commandment commandment of love, he clarifies for us that this commandment is both old and new. That it was given to us in the Old Testament that we're called to love one another. And then we see how Jesus clarifies this and he gives it again with a commentary in the New Testament. Through that, we also see that Jesus displays this commandment in a very different way from how anyone has ever seen before. Jesus showed us a new commandment, a new version of this commandment, in the way that he shows us a love from God that cleanses us, that cleanses anyone who repents of their sin. He shows a love that is long enough to never run out, even through all of eternity, that forever and ever God's love for you can never be exhausted. He shows a love that is deep enough to reach a hold of any sinner that no matter how many terrible things they've done, no matter how many things they've done to harm God, whether knowingly or not, God's love reaches deep enough to pull anyone out. And it's a love that is high enough to bridge the gap between us and heaven. And that love is what propelled Jesus to come and die for us on the cross. This is an old commandment, but Jesus lived it out in a way that we had never seen before, making it new. And it's because of this love that was promised from the beginning of time, this love that conquers darkness. It is the love of Christ that unveils the darkness from our eyes and allows us to see God and to know him. This is the love that is given to us, and we are supposed to take this love and use it to love others. Just like how we see earlier that obedience is a measure for how that we can uh, obedience is a measure we can use to see if we are in the light to see if we know God. Our love is the same because it is an act of obedience. We as Christians sometimes, as we look at the people around us, even in the church, maybe even here at PC three, sometimes we find that Christians here in this room might be the toughest people to love. That some of us might look at Christians and say they are harder to love than my friends that I knew before, than those who are outside of the church. As we look at people, we see wounds, we see sins, we see how people are, are hypocrites, that they call for others to obey God, and yet we see the different ways that they fall short. Maybe we try to love those people, and they're supposed to, they're supposed to be on a different level than the rest of the world, and then their love doesn't match what we are expecting, and we are left disappointed. We can see all the issues and we can maybe say, hey, I don't want to love these people. I want to go love other people on the world who don't know Jesus, who don't have an excuse, who, who don't have a reason even to change the ways that they're living. But John, in this passage, uses the word brother here. And what he means by brother is he's talking about fellow Christians in the church. What John is saying is that if we claim to be loved by God, to know him and to know his love, to know this fact that we are loved by him when we did not deserve it, when we are unworthy of it, we are hypocrites if we do not love other hypocrites in the same way. For some of us, this is particularly difficult with people in the church because perhaps rightly, we expect much more from Christian men and women from Christians in our, in our friend groups or in our families than what we expect from other people out in the world. But we love others in the same way that Jesus did. That we love not because others are worthy of our love, but because God is worthy and he has lavished that love upon us. Our staff team was at a marriage conference uh, a few weeks ago 
And one of the moments that stuck out to me, uh, probably the most profound moment in the entire conference, was we, we had this couple that was, they've been full-time counselors for a long time, and they are married coming up on 48 years. And as they told their story to us, what they revealed was that um, this guy who was a pastor of a church plant, he actually cheated on his wife on her, with her best friend. And that was 24 years into their marriage, and it was devastating, and obviously such a terrible, terrible thing. They lost their ministry, and then you go into counseling, and years later, people are asking the wife, and they say, hey, how do you, how'd you learn to trust him again? How do you know that he's not going to sin against you in the same way that he did before? And her articulation was, I don't trust him, I trust God. And so what she's saying in that moment is, I know that my husband is probably going to fail at times. I know that he's not going to be perfect. I know that he's not going to be perfectly loving and righteous at every single moment of every single day. But I know that my God is, and because I follow God and God has told me to love my husband, I am going to do that. And so it's not because she believes, hey, my husband is always worthy of my love. The reason why she loves her husband is because God has found her and loved her when she was unworthy. And so for us here in the room, there's probably, maybe there's someone in the room that you have conflict with. Maybe there's someone that you find really difficult and hard to love. If we stay there and we're stuck there for a long time, there's probably something wrong with how you think God views you and how far God had to reach to actually pull you out of the darkness and to reveal himself to you. That we as a community, because we know that we are loved by God, because we believe this gospel, that we should be some of the most inclusive people that anyone can find on campus. That when people look at our friend groups, they would find people with all different backgrounds and coming from different places that they would be able to say, hey, you love, that as you've received this love, even though it's hard to love someone that's not like you, they're going all out because they're not looking for people who are going to love them back. They've already received the love that they need, and they're simply sharing it with others. That we should be a room full of people who sacrifice more than the typical friend does because we have received everything that we need from Jesus. That we, even as college students here in this room who don't have a lot of money, when we see someone else hurting or we see someone who's poor and they need help, we should be more willing to financially sacrifice ourselves, motivated by love to care for them and to love them because someone else is born our heaviest burden better. That more than any other place here on this campus, as people interact with you and they talk with you, That what they should experience from you is encouragement and love and kindness more than anything else. That we are to be a people who do everything we can to reflect the love that we have received from Jesus first. And through that, if you're struggling to love other people, that may mean that you don't actually understand fully what Jesus has done for you. That may mean that if you're in this place of going, hey, uh, I I just don't want to love that person, and someone else has come alongside you and been like, hey, think about how much Jesus loves you, and you're still struggling to forgive or love other people around you, there's something going on in understanding how much God has loved you and been full of grace towards you and has been full of mercy towards you. We will know if we know God if we love others more. John then continues on his argument 
by switching to saying, you know you know, not just if you love others more, but you will know you know if you love the world less. Look at verses 12 through 17. I'm writing to you who are God's children, because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Do not love this world. John here talks about two different types of God's children. He articulates little children, those who are young in the faith, and those who are mature in the faith. For the children, probably who John is talking about in this church, wherever he's writing to, uh, that those, he's probably talking about those who have entered into the faith recently. That Jesus, and he articulates, Jesus has won the battle against the evil one for them. He declares to them, your battle is over. Because you place your faith in Jesus, you have won the battle. Your sins have been fully forgiven and cleansed. And so here, we see that John is talking to new Christians, and he is articulating to them that even though they're young, even though they're new in their faith, they have been forgiven of their sins. John then contrasts that and looks at the next story and looks at the the believers who are more, who have grown, who have been around for a longer time. And as he looks to them, he talks about how they're growing in knowledge, growing in their maturity, uh, growing in their understanding about who this God is. What he does is he takes people who are less mature and takes people who are more mature, and he says that there is a difference between growing more mature over time. There's a difference between someone who has placed their faith in Jesus and is trying to take steps of faith, who is trying to be more changed over time, and there's a difference between someone else who has been walking the walk for a long time, and they're growing in stature, growing in love, and growing in their ability to follow all of God's commands. As these two things are split, what we need to understand is that simply because you're not perfect in maturity, simply because you still struggle with sins, does not mean that you are not saved. What Paul says here is that the person, the person who is young in their faith, who just are again going, they are saved, they are cleansed, and nothing that they have done in the past is working in their relationship, is working against their relationship with God. And yet also, these people are growing over time. That we see one person who is a sapling that has sprouted up, who has new life, who is experiencing the joy of following Christ for the first time, and they've got a lot of issues, and they're probably going to be tossed by the wind a lot, and there's probably going to be a lot of mistakes but yet they get to have joy in the springtime because new life has been given to them. And then he contrasts it with these more mature believers who are like oak trees, who have been around for a very long time, and they still have the same joy, the same hope as the younger ones. You know they've been fighting that battle for a long time. They now have more joy in the fact that they're not tossed way and throw in the wind, but rather they are sturdy and have confidence that they are going to be able to continue on. Here in this room, we have a lot of young saplings. We have a lot of people who are trying to grow in their relationship with God who be considered, considered young Christians. And it's a struggle that there's probably a lot of sin issues in your life and a lot of things that you wish that you could be freed from. Simply because you have struggles, simply because you're growing, doesn't mean that you weren't saved in the past. 
It means that probably means that you are saved, and your acknowledgement of that is, sim- is your affirmation. And so going forward, your hope is not to simply stay where you are at, but it's that you're going to change over time that you would eventually turn into mature Christians. Wherever you're at, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or for a short time, you have hope in Jesus as your Savior, and your sins have been cleansed. At the same time, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, there is a lot of work to be done out in the world, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done inside yourself. That your knowledge of God is forever going to expand that your affections are going to change over time, and as this battle is waged on within you, you are not going to be who you were yesterday. That you are no longer going to love the things of this world, but you're going to continue to love the things of God. Read with me the last few verses as we finish. 15 through 17. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. What John finishes up with here is that we cannot love both sides. You cannot love the things of this world and also be fully devoted to God. They are at, at They are in conflict with one another. When John talks about the world here, he's talking about the unredeemed, those who are still living in rebellion against the ruler, who do not want to submit to the true God of the universe. John then gives us three markings then, further, for how we need to grow in our hate for the world and grow in our hate for sin. He says, physical pleasure, a craving for what we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Friends, if you have hope in Jesus, don't be deceived by anything in this world that offers what he has already given to you. Physical pleasure. Sex will always be a fleeting pleasure, and you will look for it in more ways than you're willing to pay every single time outside the bonds of marriage. Greed and jealousy, a craving for what we see, you are never going to run out of things to long for. That even if you feel like, hey, this newer or better thing, the better version of this, of this thing that I, I've ha- I have already, man, if I, could just get these, if I could just get this new object, these new things, the new car, if I get this new job so I have the money to be able to afford more things that I want, maybe then I'm going to be satisfied. You're believing a lie, and that greed is never going to be satisfied. And lastly, the one that I think kills me or convinces me uh, to abandon the love of God in moments, the greatest weapon that he uses against me is the sin of pride in our achievements and possessions. A craving for what we see is then contrasted with a pride in what we have. It's really easy for us to think that who we are, the things in this life that we have built ourselves are something special. But the truth that John reminds us of is that this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Friends, everything you own and everything you do will be worthless to you 100 years from now. You will have no money in your bank account. Four or five generations down the line, your ancestors will know very little about you, if not nothing. 
and the resume that you are building up will be worth nothing to you if it belongs to a dead corpse. But in contrast, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. If you place your faith in Jesus, you will end up doing what pleases him. He delights in you because of what Jesus has done for you, that when he looks to you, he sees Jesus, and the works of Jesus are accredited to you, even though you do not deserve it. And Jesus, God then gets to look at you and say, I'm proud of you. The things that you're doing, I no longer see menstrual rags, but rather I see my child who is perfect and holy and righteous, and I am proud of you. If you are here in this room and you haven't had, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, I beg of you that you would actually do that. That there is nothing better. That the things that this world has to offer to you are fleeting and not enough. But what Jesus has to offer to you is boundless joy and peace that will never, that he will never be satisfied with. But you'll be looking for more and more and more. And yet at the same time, it perfectly satisfies you. I would beg of you that you would end your rebellion against God and that you would look to him knowing that he is good, knowing that he cares about you, and that you'd want to enter into an eternal relationship with him. And for the Christian here in this room, because you have been made new by God, not because of the things that you've done, not because you've earned it, not because you've done anything special, would you reflect on what God has done for you? Would you think about the time when you first became a Christian and what it felt like to know God's love for the first time, where it felt where you knew God's love and joy for the first time, and how it just overflowed out of you and how excited you were for what God had in store? Would you remember that moment? Would you understand how much God loves you? And would that be something that propels you to go out into the world and to love different than anybody else because you have received a love that nobody else has received? Would you go and love your brothers and sisters? And as that love for God grows, as your love for your brothers and sisters grows, would you not love the things of this world anymore? That's the hope, PC3. Would you pray with me?